from this morning's first story in Genesis 1, reading from verses 26 through chapter 2, 1. Follow along on the screen, for I am not using the version in your pews, for I liked the new Revised Standard Version better, primarily because in the reverse, Revised Standard, he, he or she uses the word dominion for the call we have been given over creation, rather than ruled, which is what your version says. I think how we understand that matters. So here now the word as it comes to us from the 26th chapter, after God has created all that, had, that is already in the five days, and after each day calling it good, God gets around on the sixth day with us. And then God said, let us. Nobody knows quite who us is, by the way. The royal we, some people say, maybe it's God and Jesus and the Spirit, the Trinity. Maybe it's God and God's angels. Regardless, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth. And the writer of this loves creeping things because he uses it about 50,000 times. And every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. I guess that includes fleas. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them back to back, doubled up, tripled up. Male and female, he created them. Male and female in the image of God. Hmm. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, which is to say, help contain the wildness of it. And have dominion over it, which is to say, steward it, be stewards of it, caretakers of it, oversee it, have dominion over it, and over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. It was so. And God saw everything that God had made, and indeed, it was not only good, but the text says, in the only case, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day, and thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all their multitude, including the creeping things. Recently, I listened to a radio interview with a successful woman business executive who had decided to change course later in her life 
and become the head of a large nonprofit art presence in New York City. The interviewer asked, what is it about this job that is different than the job you had and you were so successful doing for 30 years? She answered, said, she said, well, you know, it's, it's got a different purpose, of course, but the process is pretty much the same. Mostly what you're dealing with is lots of administration and a ton of human drama. Sounds like every family I know, every person I know, every business, every church, every community, every relationship I know, there is a ton of human drama. It takes lots of administration to manage ourselves in this world. Among the complexities and complications and fears and anxieties and joys of life, lots of administration, especially when we are fighting the headwinds of having no idea when the next torrent of human drama will come upon us. Anita and I often shake our heads after watching the news or hearing the story of somebody else's human drama and say, yep, there you have it, the human condition. Plenty of examples in the Bible, it's full of it. Every single story is about the human condition and about God's presence in and through it. Every single story is in some way our story too because it is about life, real life. It is about human condition tricks, both good and not so good. Sort of like minions on steroids, only not as funny and adorable, way more dangerous. By the way, when I first even knew what a minion was, my our five-year-old granddaughter asked me to watch Despicable Me with her for the first time for me, and on it were these minion things. And of course, I loved them. And after it was over, I looked at Brooklyn and I said, I've got a name for you now. You are Minnie Minion. And she goes, Papa, then what is your name? Dominion. I wish. <laughs> As this morning's passage in Genesis lays out for us, we are formed in God's image, his likeness, male and female. And God uses that word for humanity, Adam, from the word Adamah. I'm not a great Hebrew scholar, by the way. I'm doing the best I can. But Adamah comes from the derivative for the meaning of ground, of earth. Literally, it means the good red dirt. Which is to say that by our very nature, we are not God or gods, but we are mortal and finite and limited, and from dust we have come and to dust we shall return. That's built into the very creation of this text. 
which alone should remind us about our true place in this world and about how much dominion we call for ourselves. By the way, this word humanity also comes from the same Latin root as the word humus, as in ground, as in humility. Adama is a derivative for the word also for red blood, pointing to what keeps us alive as our blood is pumped, but also what causes death as so much violence spills so much blood across the ground of our history. To riff off the Adam earth part, we may be created in God's image a little lower than the angels, the psalm said, but we are also like dirt bags, both and, as in all things, both and. And the wisdom of this is not lost on the writer of this text. There's nothing new under the sun, the writer Ecclesiastes, the preacher said, meaning, of course, just this. We may have more information, we may have more knowledge, we may have more technology at hand, but our still natural human condition as being a little lower than God while also being right close to being dirt bags hasn't changed since day one. It hasn't. And for all of our liberal sensibilities who want to believe that the world is getting better and better in every way, that's true in some ways. But in terms of our human condition, we are no better human beings now than we were, according to the Bible, at creation. How can you be better than created in the image of God already? For 250,000 years, humanoids or whatever we were have struggled with who we are and whose we are in this world. And left up to our own devices, we're just as prone to claim to be God as we are prone to be creeping things. We are human nature, and like nature, we are always capricious, uncertain, mysterious, hard to read, and prone to stormy conditions if the weather is right. But we're also moved. We are moved beyond ourselves to, to paint or to express poetically the awe and inspiring beauty of driving over the Brunswick Bridge at sunup and looking out across that amazing Golden Isles water and seeing the break come off in the distance. How do you describe that? But it moves you. This morning's Psalm and Genesis text affirms that what separates us from all the other creatures is just this ability to communicate that. God spoke to us. And apparently, we creatures heard in some way, as no other creature, as we understand it, does hear or can. Because in God's image, we have been given this gift of language and the first word to us was God's direction with what to do with it. 
be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all that there is. Or in the eighth Psalm, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, the human praise, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them. How do, you, how do you come to express something like this unless you were so awestruck by the very essence of God's presence that it knocks you to the ground, the source of our being? That we can even voice it, that we can write it, that, that we can in some way image it, think it, that we are in God's true image is beyond imagination, beyond conscious language itself, but it still feeds us, it pushes us, it drives us to express what that means. Have you ever looked at another person, a stranger, and just said to yourself, that, that, that person's created in God's image because it's true, if this text is true, every single last one of us created in God's image. So how do we, how do we hate so easily? How do we name call so easily? How do we conspire against our enemies and their neighbors so easily if that's the fact? God's word was spoken, and in that speaking, God brought order out of chaos and created everything there was by saying, let there be, and there was isness, being. And God's word is the same word that when spoken called Moses to free the people of Israel from the tyranny of Pharaoh, and God's word is the same word that was uttered and spoken and became flesh in Jesus Christ. And it was God's word that when spoken formed and blessed us to be full of God's essence and also to have a sense of power and choice and autonomy to listen and speak and to have a gift of imagination ourselves that can even bring new things to bear. Ooh. It is an awesome reality. This power that God has left us with to care for his creation. So who are we? We're creatures set apart with language. We're servants of God called to care. Each and every one of us created in God's image. That's who we are. At the deepest level, even if we're still dirt bound we soar a little lower than God Whew. if we can claim that for ourselves that identity then all the identity politics in the world matter not one whit it doesn't matter of our preference or our orientation or our sexuality or our race or our gender, or our age, none of that matters, ultimately. And the more we try to claim that as our identity, 
I worry, the less of the deeper understanding of being God's child that we understand. From the outside, that might be who we are. Okay, so I'm, I'm Steve Goyer. Who is Steve? I can identify as a white, southern, heterosexual male, devoted but imperfect husband, some same kind of father. I'm striving to be a Presbyterian preacher. I'm a radical political moderate. <laughs> I love golf and fishing. I'm an ENFP on the Myers-Briggs personal inventory scale, and I am in my third trimester of life. Does that tell you who I am? It doesn't tell you what moves me. It doesn't tell you what makes my skin goosebump. It doesn't tell you what brings me to tears or laughter or joy. That, you see, is that God thing in us, that image in us. Science can tell us we're biologically, chemically, evolutionally, psychologically fated, but it cannot tell us ultimately who we are, or what we can actually become. It cannot tell us that we are made in God's image, that we belong to the Creator, that we are loved by the ground of our being. It cannot tell us that we matter enough to God to want, for God to want to liberate us from the tyranny of all the Pharaohs and Vladimir Putins in the world and the dark tyrannies of addiction and despair. And from the tyranny of ourselves and our sin and our hubris and our conceit or the mistaken notions that we just don't matter. God's word is called out to us to liberate us from those tyrannies. And that's what this story is about. Why we were created is the next question. I don't know. But maybe according to the story, it's because God wanted some companions, or at least God wanted someone beside himself to look out at the heavens and the earth and to, and to praise it, to enjoy it, to the work of his fingers, to be mindful, to walk across a field of purple and not take notice. That's what makes God really mad, the color purple reminded us. Maybe it's because God needed us to help in this creation thing, to work, to labor for, to serve, to have dominion over, as a, as a, as a wine steward would have dominion over, over the vines. If you think this doesn't raise the whole issue of why it's important to be a conservationist or an environmentalist, you haven't heard a word I've said. And that's all I need to say. It's in the text. God cares enough for us to give us a responsibility and a purpose and a job and a vocation. And we are called to labor and work. That is why we are here. I thought it was going to be great when I retired. Oh. There was no purpose. 
You can only play golf so many times a week and clean out the garage, but once, which by the way, I haven't done yet. <laughs> God loves us enough and cares enough to give us responsibility and purpose and job and vocation. And this is our role to be worker bees, to adore creation and to care for it. And this I want us to hear is who Adam ah, Adam is in this text, Adam one. Adam one is the engineer, the hard worker, the bureaucrat, the technocrat. Adam one is the one that puts his head to the plow and gets the job done. Adam one is the one who hears this call to do something and does it. That's Adam one. That is some of who we are. And even when we can't do much anymore, we can pray which may be the most doing of all. In yesterday's newspaper, I won't tell you which one because you'll label me, Anne Lamott, if you don't know who she is, you should, in a response to the high school coach who won the Supreme Court case to pray on the 50-yard line, I think probably he has a right to do that, in my opinion, although I think that he has a responsibility not to do that because it, it keeps those who are not praying out of the circle, and it also, to me at least, feels a little sanctimonious. And I seem to remember Jesus saying something about when you pray, go by yourself into a closet and lift up your prayers. Don't stand on the street corners playing with your phylacteries and your robes, looking like you're so righteous. Now, I can't say that that's why he's doing that, but I am saying that that's some of what it feels like when that happens on the 50-yard line. So she writes, this, she writes this editorial, and she says, when I pray for all the places where we see Christ crucified, Ukraine and India and refugee camps, I see in my heart and in the newspaper that goodness draws near through UNICEF and Doctors Without Borders and volunteers, through motley old us. She says, I wake up praying. I say a prayer some sober people told me to pray 36 years ago because when all else fails, follow instructions. She said, I, it helps me not to fixate on who I am. You got that? not to fixate on who I am, but on whose I am, God's adorable, aging, self-centered, spaced-out beloved. One man in early sobriety told me that he had come into recovery as a hotshot, but that other sober men helped him work his way up to a servant. I pray to be a good servant because I've learned that this is the path of happiness I pray for my family and my sick friends that they have days of grace and healing, and I, in my prayers, make me mindful of the needs of the poor. Then I get up, put on my glasses, let my dog out, read the paper, find out that I still have just as much darkness in my heart for those I don't like, she says. It is miserable to be a hater. 
I pray, she says, to be more like Jesus with his crazy compassion and reckless love. Some days go better than others. Yet I pray to remember that God loves Marjorie Taylor Greene exactly the same as God loves my grandson because God loves, period. God does not have an app for not love. God sees beyond each person's awfulness and each person's needs. God loves them as is. God is better at this than I am. Hello? You with me? When I travel, she says, I talk to so many people who are absolutely undone by all the miseries of the world and I can't do anything for them but listen, commiserate, and offer to pray. I can't turn politics around or war or the climate, but in listening by opening my heart to someone, I create with them more love, less of a grippy clinch in our little corner of the universe. On good days, she said, I feel slightly more neutral toward Jenny Thomas and the high school coach praying after games. I pray the great prayer of thanks all day for my glorious, messy family, husband, and life, for my faith, my sobriety, for nature, and for all that is here and still works after so much has been taken from us. And when I am most rattled or in victimized self-righteousness, I go for walks, another way to put my feet to prayer. I pray for help, and in some dimension outside my mind or language, I relax and I can breathe again, and I say thank you, I say thank you for the same flowers and trees and ferns and cactuses I pass every day. I say thank you, thank you, thank you. End of quote. We can do something. And that, primarily, is what we're called to do. Maybe in our prayers, the first and last thing we can do is to live in to who we have been created to be by God, to speak words of hope and healing and faith and love and wellness, and to lift up our prayers for those on our hearts and for our creation, because this is what it means by God to have dominion over. The psalmist gets it. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Maybe it's that we find out who we really are from the ground up, on our knees, in prayer, on the ground, with, with sincere and heartfelt words of gratitude. Maybe that's when we discover who we really are. Let us pray. Hear our prayers of thanksgiving, O God, for creating us in your image to serve you as you have served us and all who are in it. In Christ's name, amen.